Amen. We're going to be in Acts chapter 27, if you want to turn there. Our motive for coming to Jesus, it impacts our endurance as we follow him. If we came to Jesus because we were promised smooth sailing or uh, ease, peace, contentment, and rest from a worldly viewpoint, well, we'd be disillusioned pretty quick because life is full of storms and troubles. And uh, But when we cry out to Jesus like Peter did, as he was sinking, he, he realized he couldn't save himself, and he said, Jesus, save me. Um, when we cry out to him, we can know that he will lift us up. He will help us. He will take us by the hand, and in seeing his deliverance, our faith will grow. And if we believe that Jesus truly has the words of life, then we will hearken to them. We will seek them. And if we believe that he is our good shepherd, then we will follow him and desire to stay close to him, especially when the wolves are circling and howling. We will go to him because he's the only salvation we have. David wrote in Psalm 34, 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. When we trust in Jesus, it doesn't mean we will not have afflictions or trials, but the Lord will deliver us from them. He will enable us to endure them and uh, come forth as gold is refined. We're going to be talking about Paul and his, well, we actually won't get to the the shipwreck itself, but this is the passage where Paul, he has appealed to Caesar, to Caesar he must go, and he was taken by ship to Rome. And there's there's some interesting stormy passages in scripture, like the prophet Jonah. He disobeyed God, he went the opposite direction, and God prepared this storm. Jesus, he told his disciples, cross over the Sea of Galilee on, on a couple of occasions, and this great storm arose, and these seasoned mariners were afraid. They were afraid for their lives. And it was God who delivered them every time. Different ways, right? Jonah was delivered, or the men were delivered, when they threw him overboard. Jonah did not jump. He was picked up and cast into the sea as an act of faith and obedience to God. And when the disciples cried out to Jesus on Galilee, you know, don't you care that we're perishing? He's like, hey, where is your faith? And he stilled the storm with his voice. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Even when we're in the will of God, doing what he says, and even in Jonah's case, he was going outside of the will of God. Both times, afflictions, but God was the one who who helped and saved. And Paul's life is a compelling example of many are the afflictions of the righteous. Couldn't we say that? That Paul, he was bold to speak the truth, He was hated for it. He was persecuted. He was punished. He was imprisoned. And he would face beatings and shipwreck and trouble. But Jesus would deliver him. And so if you're afflicted today, if you've had an affliction maybe for a long time or for just a season, know that there is comfort and rest in the one that we cast our cares upon because he cares for you. Even if everyone here knew what you were dealing with, whether it's sin or a health issue, or an affliction that's been ongoing, even if we knew all about it, there's nothing that another person can do to help you or to save you. But Jesus can. And that's the awesome thing, is our God is a deliverer, and he delivers us, not necessarily in the way we want him to, or when we feel like he should, but he will. We can know this. So Acts 27, verse 1. 
And when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan Regiment. So interesting a ship of Adramitium we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coasts of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us, and the next day we landed at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. Paul had just uh, spoken before Festus, King Agrippa, and Bernice. It was decided after some time that he would sail to Rome. And instead of a slide to help follow the voyage, why don't you turn to the back of your Bibles again and look for the fourth missionary journey of Paul, and you can follow along as we go from station to station. Sometimes the maps in the back of our Bibles are just like, hey, we have a map, cool. We don't really look at them. But it's a, a useful tool to follow it. And basically, if you think where Israel is, it's going north from Caesarea, heading west, and then down by Crete, and then it will head up to Rome after a lot of stormy moments in the sea there. It's a journey that would take about three months. What's really neat is, and there's some debate about whether this is the fourth missionary journey or it's really not a missionary journey. We don't need to be all technical about it. But the thing that's cool is Paul, though in chains, the word of God was not chained. God was able to use Paul in chains to refresh others and to be refreshed himself to receive comfort from the church. So even in, even in imprisonment, he was able to be God's minister. And not just in Jerusalem, but in Caesarea for years, and then moving on. Uh, and we'll see even on the ship, he was greatly used by the Lord. So that shows us that as, as servants and ambassadors of the Lord, he can use us anywhere whether we're on our native shores or at sea or on a plane. And whether you have a lot of appointments in your diary or speaking engagements or some formal title, God's not restricted by those things. He's able to use you right where you are in the place where he has you. And as they traveled, it says they picked up Aristarchus, a believer. He accompanied them from Thessalonica and Julius, the centurion. It said he treated Paul kindly and allowed him to go ashore and visit his friends, which I think is really cool. We think of Paul like as a ministering machine, but he was a man, he was a person, who invested in friendships along the way. And we see he received care. And that's really neat, that as an ambassador for the Lord, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he received care from the church. After this long imprisonment, who knows what care he needed. He probably needed a, a good bath. Uh, a haircut, maybe he had some physical stuff that needed to be dealt with, new clothes. But he received care supplied by the church, even money um, for the voyage or whatever he needed. Typical, typically, people visit prisoners, but in this case, the prisoner was able to visit his friends. So it's quite a, a phenomenal thing that he was able to visit friends and that he took time to cultivate friendship. And I mean, if, if we went around the world, it's unlikely that it's like, oh, yeah, I'll just stop in. I know some people there. My friends are there. It may not be very many places, but Paul was able to do that because he had cultivated those friendships. So may we do so in our families and in our neighborhoods and with other folks at church. He was encouraged by receiving care, and the church undoubtedly was encouraged to give him care. Verse 4, when we had put to sea from there, 
we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmonae. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lasea. They put out to sea from Sidon. It says the winds were contrary. It did not allow for, sa- for quick passage. They arrived at Myra. They changed vessels to an Alexandrian ship that was heading to Italy. Everything that we read about, it was slow, and it was difficult, and it was hard. Like, nothing was easy. The wind was blowing in the wrong direction, and being a ship without a motor or a propeller, it was really at the mercy of the winds. They find the island of Crete, and they're always under the shelter because the winds were just blowing in the wrong direction, and so they were needing to tack. It was taking a lot of time. And it's ironic it would be called the Fair Havens because it was anything but that time of year. It was not a fair place to be. God had promised Paul that he would testify of him in Rome. And one might expect, since Paul was heading in that direction, that the trip would be easier, it would be quicker. It was neither. It was a difficult voyage. It was a lengthy one. The wind, day after day, blew against them. And they're feeling the pressure of winter coming on. Like we only have a little window of time to get from here to there, and otherwise it could be the loss of our lives, the loss of the ship. There was a temptation to doubt and to despair. Have you guys ever been out on the ocean, you know, miles out where you can't see land, and you get seasick, and you're like, how do I get off this ship? You just feel like you're going to die, and you just want it just to end. Your, your life, that'd be welcome in, in that moment. Just make it stop. You just can't get away from the rocking and the lurching and the, uh, it's just not good. Can you identify with that in your own life? Relating that circumstances seem to be against you. You know you're heading in a direction that's according to the will of God, but for whatever reason, life is difficult. Nothing is easy. Progress, it feels painfully slow, like you're not really getting anywhere, and it's just you're on this cycle. It's in those trying times that we need to choose to seek the Lord and trust him instead of hoping for visible signs of progress or measurable changes. Because if God is with us and if God is for us, does it matter if the wind blows against us? Jesus is the one who can still the wind. He can change it. But sometimes he lets it blow against us. He allows us to be hindered and delayed. And those delays are invitations to trust, to trust God, to believe in him, to affirm that I believe in you, God, even though it's contrary to what I'm experiencing right now. I believe what you have said, and I'm going to keep trusting you. Those delays are reminders to draw near to God, not just to complain about how things are going or to to wonder what's happening, but actually seek the Lord to hear from him. Verse 9, now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, men, 
I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening towards the southwest and northwest, and winter there. The voyage started slowly, uh, with difficulty. Now it turns dangerous. There's this fast mention in verse 9, it's likely the Day of Atonement in 59 AD that took place in early October. With winter drawing in, the, the Mediterranean is its not a safe place to be at this time of year. In BiblePlaces.com it said, Vegetius, this was in 4th century AD, he records that sailing in the Mediterranean after September 15th was dangerous, after November 11th was impossible. So they're right in the middle of this Pretty dangerous time to be at sea. Paul's no seaman, but he advises against continuing the voyage. He says this poses a danger for the cargo, for the ship, and even our lives. Like This is very serious if we continue on this mission. The centurion, he listened to Paul, but he was swayed by the helmsman and the ship's owner. Verse 12, it says the harbor was unsuitable or inconvenient to winter in. That's likely because it didn't provide shelter from the, the prevailing winds in that area. And so, if you were going to winter somewhere and be there for months, you'd probably want a more convenient and a better location. I mean, uh, we do that normally. We, we don't usually use ships, but it's like, oh, the seat's uncomfortable. I'm going to be here for an hour. So I want to sit in the more comfortable seat. Fair enough. So they're going to be docked there for a month or two, a few months, so why not choose a better harbor where you're going to be, where you can have access to the amenities on land? I say better to remain in an inconvenient port than to risk all in a storm, but the majority prevailed. It said the majority of them advised, hey, we can make this. Let's go to that the, the Phoenix. Yeah, that's good. It's about a half-day trip, six hours or so if you're going at five knots. I did a little bit of research into what knots are, because I have no idea. So a, a nautical mile um, is one sixtieth of one degree of latitude, which is pretty cool. I was like, wow. And they came with this hundreds of years ago. Um, and a knot is one nautical mile an hour. So if you were to go five knots, you could travel a good distance. About 30 nautical miles away was their journey. And it was very tempting, saying, hey, we can make this. The wind's been blowing nice. We can get there. Just half a day. No problem. Well, verse 13, when the wind, south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose, called Euryclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship. Fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and so were driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Perfect day on the sea. 
perfect day for sailing. Isn't this nice? South wind's blowing. Oh, man. Think about how Phoenix is going to be. Well, suddenly, Phoenix is out of the question. This massive storm kicks up. Uh, this wind called Euryclidon. Now, we in Sydney have our southerly buster. Who loves a nice southerly buster? I, for one, do. Because that gives us such relief from oppressive heat, right? And it seems always on a Sunday. Like we come to church, it's smoking hot, sticky, uncomfortable. But about 3 or 4 o'clock, that southerly comes through. Whoa. Man, it's like 10 degree drop. Thank the Lord for that. Well, the Euryclidon was not like that. It was quite to the contrary. It was something to be feared. It was dangerous. It was like a cyclone coming through. Or, yeah, it was really dangerous, and the ship was caught, they were totally out of control, being driven by the wind and the waves. They were at the mercy of the wind, or were they? But they felt like it. They were at the mercy of unmerciful winds that were just beating them up, exceedingly tempest-tossed. They're just bouncing around. Hey, the ship was a large one in those days. They lightened the ship because that would keep them from running aground. If you ran aground in the open sea or on these sandbars, you were dead. There was no Coast Guard that's going to come and pick you up. There was no Navy that was going to respond to your distress signal. It was over. There was no hope for you in this storm. And when you read about it, it's like they're fighting to secure the skiff. They're afraid that they're going to run underground. They're scrambling, trying to to undergird the ship because it's literally breaking apart. It's groaning and creaking and... They're throwing the tackle overboard. They're doing anything they can just to survive. Day after day, all hands are on deck. It says, Paul, like I threw it overboard. So it wasn't like the prisoners were like kept below. It's like everybody, our survival depends upon everyone helping. So they were all thrown into this night and day, no rest, no peace. They had not seen sun or stars. Now, that's significant because you would use those to navigate. So they have no fixed bearings. They have no way of navigating. They don't know where they are, where they're supposed to be heading, in the darkness, in the storm. There's just screaming and crying and fear. People wondering that they're they're thinking they're going to die for days. I've never been in that situation. I'm very glad I've never been in that situation. We, we can't really imagine what that, fe- that fear would be for like an hour, much less day after day. And maybe they thought at first, we can ride this out, guys. We got this. We'll just, we've done this before, but this was not like other times. And it says, all hope they would be saved was finally given up. Now, an honest reading of this, Luke's words, it suggests that the crew, and he includes himself and Paul in this, they gave up all hope they would be saved from the storm. Not Paul, you think. No, not him. He always trusted God. He never doubted. He never forgot what God told him and promised him. The Bible never says that. We, we look upon these people and we think, ah, oh, he didn't doubt. He was strong all the time. He never went. He says all hope that we'd be saved, it was lost. We had given it up. We were without hope in that moment. I believe Paul was a human being like the rest of us. And when you're sleep deprived and you are 
soaking wet and you are cold and it's day after day after day, it's easy to forget the promises of God. I mean, when I've been seasick, I was not waxing philosophical or wanting to sing praises in, in, that, in that exact moment to the Lord with panicked people who are freaking out, thinking you're going to die for day after day. I believe that people who believe in God and who trust God because of prolonged, intense trials can give up believing that their circumstances could change for the better. That salvation can come from this thing. Are you willing to admit that that's you? Where you've suffered for some, some time. And you believe in God, you believe in his existence, you believe he can help, but he just doesn't seem to be making things easier. There's no light, there's no fixed point, there's no bearings that you can take to say, well, when is this going to end? When can I have some resolution in this? And you've been adrift and helpless for so long that even hoping is a waste of energy. You don't want to get your hopes up to be knocked off your feet again, so it's just safer to not even get your hopes up and to just take it. And just gut through it and hope for morning that never seems to come. Sometimes we just want the storm to end. But really, if we'll be honest, that's a short-sighted view. Because even if the storm ended for them, it didn't provide them a safe harbor to winter in. They were somewhere out in the middle of the sea. Even if the storm ended, what would protect them from the next storm that's coming? What would keep them? What would actually get them to their intended destination? They needed more than just the storm to end, and we do too. Sometimes you might think, if this one thing could change, if I could have resolution in this one area, then I can move on. But we need more than that. We need God in the trial and beyond the trial. We have this idea that if my pain would end, I can rest easy. But that's like a mirage of Men who are mad with dehydration, thinking they see a passing vessel, and they think, oh, that's a ship that can save me. No. The ending of the trial doesn't save you from the next. See, we can't pin our hopes on our circumstances changing, our plan coming to fruition, or our ability to deliver ourselves. Our hope has to remain in God alone. He is the one who will deliver and save. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. That's the only way that we can endure. That's the only way our hope will be unfailing is when it remains in Jesus. The storms on Galilee were too much for the disciples. Eurycliton was way too much for Paul and these guys on the ship. For us, failing health, troubled marriage, rebellious kids, Recurring depression, it's too much for us. But it's by looking to Jesus that we find hope again, a hope that does not fail, because his love never fails. Even in darkness, we can look to the light of the world and find hope in him. Our joy comes when we hear our Savior speak, and he says, peace be still. And he may not be talking to the wind and the waves, he might be talking to you. Peace, be still. Let your heart be at peace in him. Let your heart find rest in his goodness. Acts 27, 21. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, 
Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel, the God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all that sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Many days had passed since the storm hit. The sailors and prisoners had not eaten. Finally, Paul stands in the midst of them. And he says, you should have listened to me when we sailed from Crete. Now, usually when we say something to, on, the, on the kind of like, I told you so, it's to make other people feel bad. Like, you need to know how wrong you were and that I was right. But that's not the reason why Paul says that. He says, I want you to take heart. We all know that we're in a bad situation now. You should have listened. But listen to me now. Take heart. Paul had words of encouragement and comfort for them because that night he received a revelation from God and he had sent an angel to speak to Paul. Paul needed to hear it. And the people needed to hear it too. He wasn't just the uh, middleman. He, he needed to hear this because he had given up hope that they were going to be saved. And God said, go talk to Paul. Remind him of what I've said. And then when Paul was reminded and he took it to heart, he believed the word that was spoken to him. Then he shared it with the others and sought to encourage them too. I love that he says, the God to whom I belong the God that I serve. He said there'd be no loss of life. Now, these a lot of these people served idols. They would have carried them around. Can you imagine if you, you trusted in this charm or this idol for protection and in the storm, you lost it? Or it was too heavy and they go, that thing's got to go, man. It's just weighing us down. All right, and you chuck it in. Oh, no, now I've angered the gods as well. Like, oh, we're in really big trouble. But Paul didn't have a little idol that belonged to him. He belonged to God and God had him. And so he's like, God's got me. I belong to God. And he says, don't be afraid, Paul. Because Paul was afraid. Don't be afraid. You must be brought before Caesar. Yes, you're going to go. And God has granted you all who sail with you. So Paul had been praying for himself, had been praying for the crew. And God said, I've answered your prayer. Not one of them is going to perish. They're all going to survive this. Seems impossible now. Seems like there's no salvation, but it's in me, and I'm going to save you. Our God answers prayer. And then, because of God, who God is and what God had promised, Paul concluded, Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe that it will be just as it was told me. When all Paul's hope was given up, God sent a an angel with a message of hope. Don't be afraid. I will bring it to pass. I will save you. Isn't it so cool that God speaks to his afflicted servants? He doesn't say, well, I told you, you should remember. Now he reminds us again. He's very gentle and he's very gracious. When we've forgotten all about him and we've, we've really lost hope, we wouldn't admit it, but he says, you know, don't be afraid. I'm not afraid. 
<laughs> you know. <laughs> like, he knows. God knows. Paul needed to take this to heart, and he did. If you belong to God, if you serve him and you cry out to him, I believe God will speak to you as well. Sometimes when we're not even crying out to him, he will speak to us. That's how gracious he is. Because we didn't know, even know how to find him at the beginning. But he has revealed himself to us. He's made his truth clear. And part of the message, though, interestingly, he goes, however, we must run aground on a certain island. Now, that's death. Again, you don't want to run aground anywhere, not in a storm. But that was going to be the way. You're all going to be saved, but we're going to run aground. The storm wasn't going to stop. The storm was going to keep on going. And they were going to run aground, but God was going to save them. So in light of God and his promise, Paul chose to believe God over statistics or his own experience. It was going to go, well, that's like a 10% chance of survival if you crash, you know. No, he was trusting the Lord. And that's where the hope is. It's in God, not in the storm stopping him. Acts 27, verse 27. Now, when the fourteenth night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land, and they took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be fifteen fathoms. Then, fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship when they had let down the skiff into the sea, Under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. This was going on for a fortnight, 14 days. They had been driven up and down. They were going just back and forth in this big circle in the middle of this raging sea. And it it says the sailors sensed about midnight, we're getting there to land. There was a way they could tell, just by how it felt, I suppose. But they took soundings. This was usually with a a, a large piece of lead and a line. The, the Greek word translated soundings, it actually means to heave the lead, which is kind of a cool concept. So they, they heave the lead out there, like, oh, 20 fathoms. The fathom is two imperial yards, or six feet, so 1.8 meters. First, they had 20. Took it again, 15. All right, that's about nine meters change in a short period of time. So let's get those anchors down just to hold our position until morning because we don't want to run aground on the rocks. Again, they were very afraid because that was death. So after they lowered the anchors from the the stern, which is the back of the ship, the sailors went up to the prow. That's the front of the ship. And they made like they were going to be letting down the anchors as well, but instead they lowered the skiff. Now, a skiff was a small vessel that you would use to go from ship to ship or to go ashore. It was a flat-bottomed small boat that would not be running aground. They do not want to run aground. They do not want to crash into rocks. And they're like, we can navigate our way to land. We know we're getting close to land. It's not that far. We're just going to bail. They were not content to sit there and be battered by the storm anymore. But Paul notices this. He's all, he dobs them in. Hey, those guys are not doing what they're supposed to do. They they acted like they're putting down the anchors, but they're actually lowering the skiff to escape. And who does he address? 
the centurion and soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Notice he does not say, if they don't stay, they're not being saved. No, he says, if they don't stay, you're not being saved. Well, they're like, okay, well, we want to live. So they cut off that skiff and they let it fall and, and head off. These men once ignored Paul's words. Now they're taking them to heart. They took in heart to heart the encouragement. Hey, they had no, no chance of salvation. So they're like, man, this guy, God's spoken to him. There's a chance for hope here. And then they, they cut that skiff and let it go. Despite that promise from God, these soldiers, these sailors, they trusted themselves, didn't they? They trusted their own ability to navigate to land. Like we can, we, we've got this far. We can make it from here. And they did everything in their power to prevent the one thing God promised would happen. He says, you're going to run aground. They didn't want to run aground. I don't think anyone wants to run aground. God would allow that to run aground, but he would save their lives. And how often we look to a skiff of sorts. A preferable way of escape from a harrowing ordeal our backup plan, something that we can, I can rely upon my own ability to get me out of this tough spot. But God wants us to cut those away from our lives, and sometimes he'll use somebody else to do it. The sailors weren't willing to cut down their own skiff. They wanted to lower it and use it, but God used the centurion and the sailor, the other sailors, to, soldiers to, to cut it away, remove that backup plan. We need to rely upon God and his word, what he has said, who he is and what he's promised us. Verse 33, and as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, today is the 14th day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. Paul encouraged everyone to eat. They had not eaten for 14 days. I mean, there's a little point in eating if you're just going to be fish bait. It was a lot of work. I mean, they were, they're up at midnight. They're up. I mean, they weren't sleeping much. And they were just trying to survive. But he says, you guys have been in survival mode, but you haven't been um, taking care for the health of your bodies. You're going to live. You need strength to continue. So let's eat, man. So they, they eat together. I like the way that Paul, it says he took bread, gave thanks to God, and broke it. And that's really the pattern we see established by Jesus, where he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and then distributed it. And the presence of God just brought peace to those guys where they were gladdened and they were encouraged and they took heart in that example and they all, all ate until they had had enough. There was this dramatic effect on the listeners. The storm is still raging. They, it's still dark. They don't know where they are. They don't know how long it's going to last. But there's really an act of faith here to, to cut away the skiff, an act of faith to eat, and then to throw everything else into the sea, trusting that God would provide once they came ashore, wherever that was. 
that God was going to bring them through this. And they took heart. That's the implication. They believed God. I don't know if they came to faith in Christ, but that God would cause them to survive and provide for their needs. Their actions demonstrate a really big shift in their thinking and behavior. It had been a long time since they were encouraged. May that be a day for us that we could be encouraged today because of our awesome God, the way he speaks to us, the way he moves, the way he he brings hope. I'd like you to turn, please, to Psalm 34. I introduced the talk with, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And that may give the wrong impression, unless we read this in context, that God's just going to deliver us from all troubles unscathed. That he's going to bring an end to our pain, our trials, or or these difficulties will be brought to a quick and painless end. God's deliverance doesn't always look like that. I mean, ultimately, when we look to the eternal state where God's wiped every tear from our eyes, all the memories and the sorrows of this world have been just totally dissolved. And we're in the presence of God, rejoicing in his glory. Yes, that there will be a salvation in that day. But God's deliverance... It doesn't look like how we expect. Psalm 34, starting in verse 17. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and saves such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Now, did you see the shift of the pronouns there from them and those to him and his? We get more light on the, this, the impact of this passage of verse 20, that it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. After Jesus breathed his last on the cross, he was pierced with a spear. Unlike the two criminals crucified with him, that, whose legs were broken so they would die quickly, John said in John 19, 35 and 36, and he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. This was written so we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah because his life fulfilled scripture. He was crucified, but not a bone was broken. Now crucifixion is a brutal thing and yet God preserved all his bones. But we'd say, shouldn't he be saved from crucifixion? No, God allowed him to be crucified so we could be redeemed and saved. And God would allow this ship that Paul was on to be broken up by the violence of the waves, and yet they would be saved out of it. There would be much loss, the loss of the ship, the loss of the cargo, but they would be delivered because God delivers us from our afflictions. Isn't that crazy? God allows shipwreck but he saves. God allowed his own son to be crucified, but not a bone was broken. Every one of them was carefully guarded. We go, well, that doesn't sound very encouraging. You know, he, he died. Right? But there was victory. It was victory and glorification through the death, through the cross, that we rejoice in every day as children of the Almighty God. That he overcame death, not only for himself, but for our benefit 
and for the glory of his eternal kingdom. God would deliver Paul. God would deliver all that traveled with him. Yet the ship would be destroyed. And God's ways are not our ways. And he works in ways that we cannot fathom. But it's in him alone we find rest for our souls. Just have a final word of encouragement. If you find yourself, if you can identify with being in that storm, um, and it's in Isaiah 54, 10 and 11, with our Redeemer who says to us, he says, For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you, nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. Oh, you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted. Behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. My kindness will not be removed from you. The Lord has mercy on you. It may not feel like that when you're feeling the pain and you're in the middle of the storm and it may seem like everyone's forgotten about you and no one really understands or knows what you're going through and they don't. Your world might be turned upside down, but he says, my covenant of peace, I'm not going to withdraw that from you. I've offered it to you and it's yours forever. That covenant through the blood of Jesus. And instead of a billowing sea, God, he has the comfort of a firm foundation for you, not one that's cold concrete, but he says with sapphires and gems and precious things, things that cost a lot. Because you're precious in my sight. Will you admit you've given up hope so you might receive hope from the Lord today? He offers it to you through himself. In je- like, like Paul, he said, guys, let's eat. We haven't eaten for a fortnight. And we've been tempest-tossed and we're tired and we're weary. And we don't know where we are and we don't know what's going to happen. But let's eat because this is for our survival. I urge you, ingest this word that's been given this morning. Take it to heart. Let it penetrate your mind. Receive it. It's for your salvation. So you can be living a life full of hope and our Savior who speaks peace. And we can look expectantly, even in the dark, for the dawn. Because he comes. Let's rejoice in him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are an awesome God who has mercy for us who has given us great hope. And Lord, you know the afflictions of the righteous. It says here they are many. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but you deliver us out of them all. And we thank you, Lord, for your promise. We thank you for the mercy that you've extended to us. And even that picture that Jesus, he he went to the cross, yet you guarded every one of his bones. Lord, guard our hearts today. Keep us from temptation to despair and to doubt what you have said because the storm's been rough and it's been going for a while. Lord, I pray that that we would cut away anything in our lives, those skiffs, those escape routes, to try to, to lean on our own understanding instead of acknowledging you in all our ways. Thank you, Lord, that your ways are higher than ours and they are perfect. We look to you, Lord. Open our eyes to see you exalted. May we extol you and praise you. For you are an awesome God, and it's in Jesus' name we pray.